Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, June the 12th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio today are political editor Pat Leahy, and we're going to be joined a little bit later by Cliff Taylor to discuss this week's criticism of government economic policy by the Fiscal Advisory Council. But first, the most surprising news story this week was the outbreak of verbal hostilities between the Irish and Scottish governments over fishing rights around Rockall, an uninhabited lump of rock hundreds of miles out in the North Atlantic from both countries. I'm joined by Peter Gagan, a Glasgow-based journalist with Open Society, to discuss what it's all about. Peter Gagan, you're very welcome to the podcast. It appears that peace has broken out, uh, peace in our time, and the expeditionary force has returned to Killy Beggs, uh, and there won't be uh, a conflict in the northwest Atlantic over uh, Rockall's sovereignty. What do they make of all this in Scotland? It's been quite fascinating because obviously this is an issue that's kind of gripped Ireland. As I've been following the Irish news on this. There's been a huge amount of discussions about, you know, the battle for Rockall, something that uh, many of us never thought we'd hear of. You know, is it going to be the new Cod War? But over in Scotland, I think it's been very much more muted, much more silent. Most of the reporting in the Scottish media, where there's been any, has actually just been re-reporting of Irish uh, copy. And there hasn't been anything like the kind of headline news that you've seen in, uh, in Ireland about Rockall. You know, partly there's, as I'm sure most of your listeners are aware, we have our own uh, you know, constitutional crisis here in the United Kingdom. That's part of it. Uh, the Conservative leadership election is a lot of big headline news. But also it just doesn't have the same kind of resonance here in Scotland. I think there just hasn't been the same focus here. And partly that reflects, that's kind of reflected in the fact that this has happened at all. I think a lot of people in Scotland, a lot of people even in the Scottish government, have been taken by surprise at the extent to which this rock question on what's going to happen has, been, has really kind of flared up in Ireland, has got a lot of people in Ireland talking, and it's just not being mirrored here in Scotland. You know, if, if people in Ireland are having pints and talking about, you know, will we be going to war over Rockall, they're certainly not having that conversation here in Scotland. Pat, one of the reasons um, that strikes me that, that might be the case is that, number one, there's a kind of comic quality to this story, which I think Irish people have been aware of for a longer period of time. I recall all the way back to the 1970s that Sean Dublin Bay Loftus added the name Rockall to his name when he was standing for election there. So there's always been this slightly kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of element about it, but it was always framed as a conflict with the Union Jack rather than the St. Andrew's Cross. So the Scots weren't part of the battle until recently. Rock on, rock all, you'll never fall to England's greedy hands. So imagine our surprise when it turned out to be Scotland that was trying to get its mitts on this and our prized Northern Atlantic possession. I think there is uh, there is an element of comedy to it. There's no doubt about uh, there's no doubt about that. And the fact that it is uh, that it is the Scottish fisheries protection vessels, which are presumably steaming their way as we speak across the North Atlantic waves uh, towards our gallant lads who are circulating around uh, Rockall with their uh, with just, their nets and gear. Just after a bit of haddock, after uh, all. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, uh, I mean, look. I suppose it's reasonably serious for the fishermen in, uh, involved who they say have been fishing around Rockall for years. 
Scots, on the other hand, say that there has been an intensification of this, what they class as this illegal fishing uh, going on uh, of of late, and that's the reason for their warnings and any future action on the part of their fisheries protection uh, vessels. So, um, it it it. There is this kind of dual comic, but also slightly serious nature to it. I suppose if you're a fisherman and you see the Scottish, uh, the Scottish boats steaming towards you and demanding that you desist or threatening to well, board let, you, let, let, which they act, which the minister, Scottish yes, Fisheries Minister, let's specifically just be clear did. about the nature of the dispute here. But way back in the 1950s, the UK claimed Rockall as part of the sovereign territory of the United Kingdom, but that claim was never accepted by Ireland. And the current situation is not that Ireland claims sovereignty over the island because it says that under international law, it's an uninhabited rock, so nobody can claim sovereignty over it. But the the UK, and therefore by extension Scotland, continues to maintain that claim. And, and actually, I think under British legislation, the rock is part of Scotland. But as we know, uh, with uh, debates over Brexit, just because the British say something is true doesn't mean it is true. True. Um, and ultimately, the... The rights of the, the the sovereign rights around Rockall, whatever they may be, and the associated fishing rights and potentially mineral rights, which may which may be a bigger issue, are likely to be decided in some form of international tribunal. I think that's inevitably where this is going. There may be a few stages before that yet, but as far as I'm as far as I'm aware, this dispute has been kind of perambulating around the capitals without any great interest on the part of anyone for many years. It doesn't just involve Ireland and the UK, it also involves Iceland, it also involves Denmark on behalf of uh, the Faroe Islands. So um, it's, 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 it's hard to see how it doesn't end up in some sort of international tribunal if anyone is, of, is sufficiently interested to push it that far. There does seem to be a, a newly enthusiastic interest on the part of the Scots in it, and maybe that's the thing that pushes them. Yeah, and what do you think about that, Peter? There's a piece in today's Irish Times by Alex Massey, and he's saying that the essentially saying that the, the authorities in Scotland are a bit taken aback that uh, that their their claim to kind of to kind of put put a bit of schmuck on the Donegal fishermen is being is being resisted in in some way. But there's also a, an analysis, and we saw some from former Irish ambassador Bobby McDonough earlier this week, essentially that. Somehow this is framed within a larger picture about Brexit and some of the challenges facing the SNP in future elections that the constituencies from which Scottish fishermen um, uh, fish in these grounds in eastern Scotland were fertile ground for Ruth Davidson's Conservatives at the last election and that the SNP are trying to, I suppose, wave the flag a bit more. I think there's probably, uh, there's, there's almost a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. You know, I think it is fair to say that the uh, the kind of extent of which we've seen the kind of re-emergence of rock all and uh, uh, kind of talks about our, our our fishermen having to defend themselves out, out around the rock uh, has taken the Scottish government by surprise. I don't think they were expecting uh, this to become, to blow up into such a big issue, you know. And as... It, Pat's totally right. There's been bilateral stuff about this going on for years. Uh, and I think what if you talk to Scottish government ministers I did this week, they will tell you, look, we've been going behind the scenes talking about this for ages. We have a good relationship with Dublin. Rockall is the only irritant. We're basically just 
we're asserting what, what our, our sovereign, or actually slightly ironically, the British sovereign rights over rock all, as laid down in, in legislation passed by the House of Commons. So, you know, we're just, there's nothing to see here. And that's been very much the kind of the official line from the Scottish government. And I think there is some truth to that. I think they are, they are really genuinely, as Alex Massey points out today, quite surprised to see this becoming such an issue. And I think there might have been a little bit of a cultural difference there. You know, I was I was talking to friends the other day about rock all, and most of them literally did not know where it was and had never heard of it before. They probably didn't listen to the fish, uh, the shipping forecast enough as a teenager as I had. But, you know, this, they, there's not a huge cultural kind of memory of rock all. It doesn't mean as much here in Scotland. But there is also political, domestic political uh, pl- at play as well. Yeah, and can you shed some light on that? Because I don't think we necessarily hear enough for as much as we should about what is the state of play as the ferment of Brexit goes on. What's the state of play in Scotland? What's the position of the of of the SNP and the other parties there? Do they just have to sit and wait and watch how this thing plays out, or is it having an impact on domestic politics on a day to day basis in Scotland? Well, in some ways, it's not dissimilar to what's happening in, in Ireland with with Brexit. You know, we've had. Our, the Irish government have been waiting for a long time to see what shapes out with Brexit, probably before having a general election. There's similar issues here in Scotland. There's a sense in which Scotland is, is watching, is having to sit and watch what's going to happen in, the, in, in London. And the Scottish government, which is obviously dominated by the SNP, it's an SNP minority administration, they're slightly sitting on their hands at the moment. And there is a need for any government to be seen to be kind of standing up for, uh, for its constituents. And what one of the issues around what's happening at Rockall is that the Scottish Fishermen's Association, which is obviously the lobbying voice of the fishing industry, has been behind the scenes putting more and more pressure on the Scottish government over this issue. They're claiming, as you've probably seen, that there's been an increase in fishing around Rockall, and they're saying we want something done. We want something done about this. The SNP have had a difficult, testy relationship with the Scottish fishing industry for quite a while now, and you're dead right, Hugh, that the SNP had have had setbacks in what was kind of seen as traditional fishing areas, the northeast of Scotland, which were also traditionally very SNP, places like the Murray Fort, places up into Aberdeenshire, which traditionally had voted SNP at the last general election, all went en masse to the Conservative Party. And the Conservative Party then came to be seen as the kind of voice of fishing. And at the same time, a lot of Scottish fishermen would have voted to leave the European Union in 2016. So what you have is a fishing industry, which is by, it's still quite small, less than 1% of GDP, not a huge amount of fishing fishermen, but a kind of folk memory of it, and also quite a strong lobbying voice. You know, it's worth remembering that Peterhead in, fish in Aberdeenshire is the largest fishing market in the whole of Europe. There's a huge amount of fish caught, especially around Shetland and Scotland, and it still is a quite, it's quite a large industry. Um, and they have been lobbying very hard uh, about rock all behind the scenes. And it's, it's for the Scottish government, there's going to be an interest in trying to bring that constituency on side, especially if, as is quite possible, there's a snap general election here in the United Kingdom. Because the seats of the SNP would want to win back, the seats they lost in 2017, a lot of them are in kind of fishing constituency. So there is a bit of domestic politics in it, but it's important, I think, not to overplay it. What it possibly is more reflective of is a kind of sense of, of impotence within the Scottish government over the whole wider Brexit agenda. Now, if you go back to 2017, um, and actually just after the Brexit referendum itself, Nicola Sturgeon said that a second referendum on independence was, quote, on the table. In 2017, the Scottish government passed legislation to hold a second referendum on, on independence. And ever since then, the SNP have been kind of treading water on this issue. 
they can't get the UK government to give them uh, the legal go-ahead, what's called a Section 30 order, to hold a second referendum, which is because the power to hold a referendum is actually is not a, is a reserved power. It's held by Westminster. It's not held by Edinburgh. So they haven't got the legal basis for it. And at the same time, they don't have the actual polling basis to hold another referendum either. So there is a sense in which there's a, lot, there's a kind of inertia around the constitutional, big constitutional politics that are playing out across the United Kingdom within Scotland. So this kind of could be seen within some of that light, but it's important not to overstate that. I don't think the Scottish government necessarily went out looking for a fight with the Irish government on this. And in relation to those those big constitutional questions, I mean, it sounds to me as if the SNP may have to make noises about wanting a referendum, but they probably don't want another independence referendum in the immediate future, do they? And they probably are facing into some form of what people are calling an electoral event of some sort, be it a second Brexit referendum or, or a UK-wide general election. This is the big challenge for the SNP and has been for a while is how to you know, how to kind of marry up a huge demand from independent supporters, especially SNP members, for a second referendum with the with on on independence with the reality of polling numbers, which really haven't shifted. What we've seen is really there's been some below the, the surface poll shifts. Uh, but not a huge change. So back in 2014, it was 55% to stay in the union, 45% for independence. Polls suggest that's changed slightly. It might be closer to parity, but that's before a campaign. And also, it doesn't. It's it's nowhere near the kind of the numbers that the SNP would want. You know, Nicholas Sturgeon has previously talked about having wanting to see consistent polling of 60% plus. So within the SNP hierarchy, there's a huge concern about having a second referendum. But what you have is a very large grassroots party who are often quite advocating for one. I was just going to say, isn't isn't it the case, and actually Nicholas Sturgeon was in Dublin recently, and uh, I, I had a brief interview with her, I put this to her, and she was gung-ho for second referendum, She says uh, she says, next year. But isn't it the case that they'll get one more go at this and then that's it. If the SNP don't win the independence referendum, the next independence referendum, presumably to be held in the next year or two, then that's it. It's off the table for a generation. And with that, in a way, the whole raison d'etre of the SNP as the dominant party in Scotland goes. So they've got to get this right. And it must be very difficult for them, you know, to plan or, 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 to, uh, or to set in train the sort of things that would lead to a referendum, to try and roll the pitch for a referendum, when there's such uncertainty surrounding the immediate future of Brexit because presumably that will govern the entire political context in which the referendum takes place. Yeah, and I think that's very much on the on the minds of the SNP's kind of upper echelons. You know, Nicola Sturgeon has spoken before of what, waiting for the, what she called the fog of Brexit to lift. And I think we can all see from our very foggy perch somewhere near Rockall that there's not been a hell of a lot of lifting. It's still a pea super out there. And they really can't, they can't, it's really hard to say what it's going to look like. What will a post-independent Scotland look like in terms of any relationship with the rest of the United Kingdom or even the relationship with the European Union? So that's part of it. But there's also um, there's concerns that are both existential and actually very, very mundane and day-to-day about it. The more existential concerns, which I think, which Pat has flagged up, are is 
you know, a lot, lot of Scottish uh, nationalists look at Canada and look at what happened with the, with the Quebec nationalist movement. And basically, without going into the weeds of history, they had two referendums in Quebec, one in 1980 and one in the 1990s. The one in the 1990s was incredibly narrowly defeated for independence, very, very narrow defeat. But it, they've never recovered. The Quebec nationalist movement has actually never recovered from that setback. A lot of Scottish nationalists look at that and do feel we've only got two opportunities to do this. If we don't win it the second time, that will be it. But there's, as well as Brexit, there's another really difficult uh, challenge for the SNP in this, which is to do with the timing, any sort of timing. Because if we go back to 2014, it didn't just, the referendum in Scotland, you know, to a lot of people outside of Scotland, it might have felt like it happened very quickly, but it really didn't. It took about a year and a half for that legislation to go through the House of Parliament, the Section 30 order and the subsequent act that allowed for the Scottish independence referendum to take place. It's a long, long process. That was with applying... David Cameron in charge who wanted uh, who wanted this to happen uh, back with the Liberal Democrats. Now you have a Westminster government, it's almost impossible to see any Conservative leader allowing a second Scottish referendum. So in terms of legislation, the short term it looks to be impossible. That matters because the Scottish government, the SNP only has a minority in the Scottish government. There's going to be Scottish uh, elections again in 2021. The SNP are still the biggest party in Scotland. They're still topping the polls, but they're their support is waning. This is a government that's been in power for over 10 years. You know, governments always tend to lose popularity over time. It looks quite unlikely that you will see a pro-independence majority, which is what you currently have in Holyrood between the SNP and the Greens. It seems quite unlikely you'll see a pro-independence majority in a future uh, Scottish, uh, um, Scottish, uh, Scottish Parliament after 2021, or at least there's a good chance there won't be. So if that happens, there won't be a second referendum because there won't be a Parliament calling for it. So then you're into 2026 and onwards. So it's a long time scale. So there's a there's a lot of moving parts here. And I think the SNP are very aware of, of the of all of these moving parts. And I think there's probably a lot of people in the party that are hoping that you're going to see an external event, as Pat talks about, either a general election, which the SNP I think would expect to do very well in if there is one, a snap UK general election, or a second Brexit referendum that will almost kind of move the dial on all of these things. But the, the reality is the Scottish government is probably almost uh, already now is going to struggle, even within the timescale, with applying conservative, with applying government in Westminster to hold a referendum. And just, and that's a really interesting broader framing of the what, what really is an existential question facing the SNP. But just to bring it a bit kind of closer to the to the immediacy, I mean, obviously one possibility is that the SNP, if you look at current opinion polls in the UK, the the SNP could be in a kingmaker role uh, with some form of minority government of one sort or another after the next election. So, and you know that might force the issue. But first of all. Of course, we have this Tory election, which we're in the midst of now. It's started. Uh, is there is there wailing and gnashing of teeth in Edinburgh and Aberdeen that native son Michael Gove has uh, has had such a bad week? <laughs> less less so. Uh, um, it's, it's quite interesting how few of the cons- leading Conservatives are kind of claimed as Scottish, even by Scottish Conservatives. Michael Gove is Scottish. Uh, Liam Fox, the defence, uh, the former defence secretary, uh, often described as the disgrace. Liam Fox is still is he's Scottish as well. You know, but they're they're rarely claimed by Scotland. What you're seeing more of in Scotland is the conversation around Boris Johnson. To be honest, There's, there is a strong sc- school of thought that Boris Johnson is very dangerous uh, for the Conservative brand in Scotland. That he would be seen as you know as as very toxic. Right around the corner from my house here in Glasgow, there's graffiti that's been on the wall for about three years. It says Boris Johnson is a pure something I'm not going to say on a on a morning uh, radio program. It's a podcast. Uh, you can say whatever you want. Bounder, yeah. <laughs> a, a bounder, yes. And so there's there is a there is a sense in which uh, Boris Johnson seems particularly. Uh, 
toxic for Scottish Conservatism. And you actually saw that this week with Boris Johnson's proposal that he would cut income tax, uh, that he would kind of increase the top rate of income tax, or the kind of the one below that, to 80,000, from 50,000 pounds to 80,000 pounds a year. The Scottish rate of income tax is already much uh, lower than it is in the rest of the United Kingdom. It's only £43,000. So that would increase, that would produce a huge shortfall in Scotland. And there's a sense that that policy just kind of showed that Boris Johnson isn't attuned to Scotland at all. So there hasn't been, I think, for the SNP, they're kind of seeing this as a slight plague in all their houses and are probably quite happy to watch the various Conservative Party candidates kind of try to appeal to the Conservative electorate, which is, my, is majority in kind of middle England uh, and kind of, it, none of it reflects particularly well on the debate in Scotland. What do you make of the Michael Gove Coke thing, Pat? Well, not a matter I'd give it a great deal of uh, thought to. I, I, I suppose, you know, previously you would have always thought that, you know, admission of drug use would disqualify a politician, particularly a, a, a Tory politician, uh, Although that has changed over the years with that, generational change, first at Bill Clinton and then more so yeah, with Obama. But I'm, and the I'm, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of uh, of the Tory Party. But several of the candidates now seem to have fessed up to it. Rory Stewart, who, to my mind, has been the most impressive of all the candidates thus far. Now I think that he is unlikely to. He's certainly unlikely to win. But you wouldn't rule him out as being uh, the 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 next Tory leader after. Uh, the next one on the basis of these performances. But he admitted to smoking opium at, a, I think he said, a wedding in Iran. He didn't quite say Persia, but uh, we, we, we know what he meant. Um, uh, Rumours about Boris Johnson's drug use have abounded for years. He said he was offered it and, uh, and he sneezed and it went everywhere, although it could have been icing sugar, uh, I think he said. But... Uh, so it, it no longer seems to be, as you suggest, uh, no longer seems to be a big disqualification for, uh, for, for aspirant Tory leaders. But this has blown up in Gove's face. More so, not is it so because, of, because of, this? of Not so much because of the use itself, yeah. but because as a columnist and later as a justice minister, he railed against An absolute uh, stench use. of hypocrisy off the whole So... Uh, so, yeah, perhaps it's the hypocrisy rather than the youthful indiscretions that uh, that, are, uh, that are that are causing him trouble. My view is that, you know, politicians should probably adopt the uh, approach of the second George Bush, who uh, I think his approach to questions about his uh, youthful, uh, his youthful misdemeanors was uh, when I was young and foolish, I was young and foolish. And that seemed to get him out of a lot of scrapes, but it uh, doesn't seem to be getting... Peter, we know these conservative uh, contests are dirty fights and there's various other things rumbling under the hood of this, you know, this contest. Among them, uh, some allegations surrounding a non-disclosure agreement between uh, an employee of Dominic Rabb from about 10 years ago. So uh, can we expect a, f- a few more dirty tricks over the next week or two? Yes, I think it's likely to be. It's been, I think, historically, you know, even in, in even in the history of conservative campaigns, this is actually particularly dirty. We had Michael Gove this week, you know, making kind of sexual innuendo about Boris Johnson, don't, telling Boris Johnson don't pull out, and then saying he meant it because oh, don't because last time Boris Johnson pulled out of the race to, to succeed Theresa May. The, it has been all quite unedifying, and I think this, any sense that this process will kind of provide some unity candidate at the end of it looks. 
I think very very far fetched. If anything, once the once the kind of all the, the lesser uh, the lesser beasts kind of go out of this contest, because this is going to go on for quite a long time. Time. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of rounds of voting within the Conservative Parliamentary Party before it even goes near the near the general uh, Conservative grassroots membership. So I think you're, you're likely to see quite a bit more of this kind of like quite unsavoury infighting and very little discussion. I would expect on substantive policy issues, you know, whether that's Brexit or even things like income tax. There's been a lot of uncosted, floaty policies being kind of. Uh, shot from the hip by various candidates but there seems to be so far no actual kind of deep engagement very much isn't the real question though about the rest of this campaign and particularly about the dirty tricks element uh, of it is can you know is there is there a torpedo currently being loaded into firing tube one at the great white whale uh, aimed at the hms boris um you know, have the have the tubes been flooded? Have the has the target sequence been locked? Uh, that that's the that's the question. Can Boris be torpedoed by one big revelation? He has been impervious to all sorts of questions about his character thus far. Maybe it's that voters don't care about character, even though much of the race seems to be about character rather. So there's than, a Trumpian uh, quality policy. to this, possibly. Yeah, possibly. So I. I I would be amazed if there aren't, um, uh, you know, if there aren't some revelations about Boris. The question is, A, are they serious enough uh, to change the nature of the race? And if they do, can they sink him? Uh, one fascinating thing about Boris Johnson's campaign has been how little we've seen of Boris Johnson, uh, as opposed to 2016, where he was kind of everywhere and then bombed, uh, bombed out, of the, uh, out of the race very quickly. This time around, he's been stage managed by Linton Crosby, who's a very, very experienced uh, Australian political spinner. And there's a lot of question marks, but there's a lot of money going behind Boris Johnson. Uh, Linton Crosby is very is known for running very tight campaigns. It's quite clear that Boris Johnson has been told not to go near the media. But it'll be very interesting to see as well if, as well as revelations about Boris's own personal life, if we start to see revelations about where the funding behind Boris's campaign is coming from. Because it's quite clear there's a very, very large and very expensive media campaign behind Boris Johnson, PR campaign. And so far, we've not had much of a hint of where that's coming from. So if some of that starts to come out, if people who have more information on, on various aspects of Boris Johnson are able to put some of that into the public domain, it might change things. But then again, it might not. As a lot of people say, it's all priced in with Boris Johnson already. Peter, thanks very much for joining us. Stick with us. We'll be discussing matters closer to home. You're listening to the Irish Times. And we're joined now by Cliff Taylor, who is our guru or a man of wisdom on all matters uh, all matters financial, on. known as Fiscal Cliff to his friends. Um, he's going to be talking to us in a little while about the economy and the way it's intersecting with politics right now. But first of all, you're going to talk to me about that, Pat, because we did get the Fiscal Advisory Council, which we should remember was a, was a creation of Fine Gael. Um, having a good go at this Fine Gael government this week. Yes, the latest in a number of good goes, to be honest, at the uh, at, at this government, but certainly the most explicit thus far. I mean, we've had for the last couple of years and the last couple of budgets, we have had criticisms, I think, uh, it's fair to say, of government economic and fiscal policy by the fiscal Council, but it tended to be a little bit circumspect, a little bit veiled, um, a little bit on the one hand, on the other. But I think with this latest report, 
and the visibility of the chair of the uh, of the council, Seamus Coffey, who's been out everywhere over the last um, over the last twenty four hours or so. I, I think we have the council's criticisms becoming an awful lot more direct, an awful lot more explicit, and it seems to me aimed as much at the general public as they are at the uh, at the government. And what they are saying in simplified terms is that uh, government's fiscal discipline, its spending discipline has largely evaporated. It is making uh, unplanned budgetary adjustments over the course of the year, voting extra money, principally for health, but other areas as well, uh, refusing to stick to its agreed budgetary plans because of political pressures. And crucially, it is doing this with revenues from corporation tax, which may well be transient in the future. Now, given the history of the Fiscal Council, which was set up after the economic crash with the explicit intention of advising future governments not to repeat the mistakes of the past that led to the period of austerity after the global economic crash of 2008, given that history of the Fiscal Council, is very wounding of the government to be told in such explicit terms by the Fiscal Council, you might not be making the same mistakes, but you're making very similar mistakes to previous governments. And I think it constitutes a political problem uh, for the government because it erodes that economic credibility that Fine Gael will need, I think, if it's going to win the next general election. And very worrying for all of us, really, isn't it, Cliff, in that it's, as, as Pat says, it's too twin-barrelled attack, really. On the one hand, an inability to control spending, uh, to stick to planning in relation to spending. And on the other hand, an over-reliance on what might be a temporary source of taxation revenue. And that's exactly what happened 11 or 12 years ago. Sure, sure, absolutely. I guess if you set up a fiscal watchdog, you can't complain uh, if the watchdog decides to bark every now and again. And I think I've noticed a an increase in... Uh, in the volume of that, you might say, since since last year, since towards the end of last year, when the government ran into problems on health spending, going way over budget. And shortly before Budget Day, uh, the Minister, Pascal who came out and said, look, uh, we're, we're going over budget in health, uh, but we've got a large surface, a large unexpected inflow of corporation tax. And while he tried to separate the two in terms of how the money was used, the fact was that the surfeit of corporation tax, which was only revealed very late in the day and still a bit misty about why why that happened, was used to pay for for overspending in health. And I think perhaps rightly that that annoyed the fiscal advisory council, or at least led them to increase their warnings to the government, because this was following a pattern, as Pat said, of what's been happening in the last few years. If the government had stuck to the budgets as outlined each year, then we, we would be in a lot better position and we would have a kind of significant financial surplus at this stage. But what the council has said was, look, there was a huge improvement in the budget position from the crisis up to about 2015. And since then, we've got a lot of extra cash in, but we've pretty much found a way to spend it all. Mm. And the underlying position hasn't really improved an awful lot since then. We've kind of edged a bit towards surplus, but we've edged towards surplus in a situation or into surplus just about but in a situation where the economy is growing very very quickly and we know from the past that it's not going to continue to grow very very quickly at some stage 
the economy is going to slow. And now we face into a, a budget, probably the last one before a general election. Uh, and and I guess these these issues are really are, are really kind of fr- front and center. The government will want to spend money. Uh, we know from what uh, the Taoiseach has said that they want to cut taxes as well. Uh, we're not quite sure what the play is between the Taoiseach and, and the Minister for Finance on this. Uh, but clearly there's a danger of, 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 of adding yet more risk. And could you just clarify or educate me on, on one element of this? I mean, I know that a lot of this, one of possibly the single most significant one is overspend in the health service. And as sure. you know, that's been an ongoing problem for uh, for many years now. But we've also seen in the news items about, you know, the, 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 the huge increase in the cost of the, of the National Children's Hospital, mm-hmm. the decision to spend an awful lot of money on broadband. But are those... Are those do those come under the the heading of capital investment? In other words, they're not ongoing yeah. commitments till the end of time, are they? They're not. Uh, they do create some ongoing commitments, and they are big capital commitments. But you're right. So the main concern of the fiscal advisory council is day to day spending, uh, and the increase in day to day spending we've seen over the last few years. And the problem with day to day spending is that it's very hard to to trim it back. So as we saw during the crisis. Uh, it's it's very hard to take cash out of day-to-day spending. What the governments, what Irish governments have traditionally done and what happened during the crisis was capital investment spending was cut very heavily. Now, you could argue that that isn't a great thing to happen during a recession and, and that you'd like to have the leeway to actually increase capital investment spending during a recession. That would be kind of the traditional counter-cyclical, as it's called, way of, the of operating. Argue, but, exactly. politically, but politically, it's a nightmare. But politically, we've tended to operate on the Charlie McCreevy doctrine of, you know, when we have the money, we spend it. And that's particularly and the case back there again when now. you get to health spending, because an awful lot of the overrun which has been paid for by uh, corporation tax revenues, unexpected corporation tax revenues in recent years, that overspend has been on the current side of the ledger. And as Cliff points out, the difficulty in building in additional current spending is that that is in the base and has to be paid even when the economy slows down and you've less money from taxation revenues or if there was an event such as a no-deal Brexit that would deliver a sudden juddering shock to the to the economy. And, you know, we've seen what happened with that in 2008, a comparable event when... Uh, taxation revenues simply fell off a cliff and the government was then faced with an awful lot less money but it still had the ongoing current expenditure bills to pay pensions, welfare, public sector wages and all those things had to be cut and that was what gave us those years of grinding austerity and the whole idea of the Fiscal Council was to advise on policy that would prepare or that would avoid those mistakes being made uh, again. And the point of the coffee reports over the last couple of days is that he is warning. He's not saying this is definitely going to happen, but he is pretty much waving the warning flag well, well, at the government. It's, it's starting to happen, certainly. What's the government's response to that? Government's response is kind of, uh, is kind of twofold. Uh, the first is, uh, is to say, look, These are being paid for, you know, most of our increase is in capital spending. And it is true that capital budgets absolutely jumped over the last couple of years. And there is something in that government response to it. It's not all going on current spending, but some of it, uh, but some of it is. The second part of the response is to say, look, quite justifiably, 
in my view. This is in response to public demand for better services. So you take something like, uh, you know, uh, the, the thing that was announced yesterday, which is the provision of the Spinraza drug uh, uh, in uh, in the health budget, which I think costs about 20 million a year for a small number of people affected by, uh, by a terrible condition. Take something like the um, uh, the the Defence Forces Pay, which there is a currently a report before government likely to be published next week, which recommends some increases in allowances for uh, for uh, members of the Defence Forces, but won't go far enough to satisfy the demands for higher pay, for higher take-home pay for lots of Defence Forces personnel. Something which there is not just, it seems to me, widespread public support for, but certainly widespread political support for. So, on the one hand, the government has to balance this obvious demand for extra expenditure in a whole variety of areas which on their merits, on their individual merits, very few people will say, no, we shouldn't spend money on that. Um, and it has to balance that against the need to be fiscally prudent. But well, well, I make the point. Well, 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 hold the point on, today. hold on. Does it not also have to balance it against the need that if you are going to spend money, that you need to find the money somewhere? So, for example, if these, well, if these, if these very important things, which you've rightly pointed out, need to be spent on, well, then the money needs to be raised somewhere, i.e., by some form of taxation. Well, sort of, right? Um, because one of the one one of the difficulties that the government has now, and uh, is that it does actually have the money because of these bumper taxation receipts, also a couple of kind of one-off events, but uh, the bumper taxation receipts, particularly in the area of corporation tax, it does have the money. So back in, you know, 2013 and 2014, it didn't have the money, so it had to say no to everybody. Now, no government can meet all the demands for spending. It it only sort of has the money, though, you know, I mean, it has the money... Today, yeah, but looking forward to well, next year or the year after, but this, it may is, not this, have is, the money. this is precisely the point. But the in, in in one respect, it's kind of easier to manage these questions when you have no money than when you have some money. Telling you what but to do, this maybe. is this is so the is this, challenge is this of government. Stamp duty and Brian Cowan all over again. This is exactly the fear that the fiscal council has, and what the fiscal council is saying is, you guys need to pay attention to this. Interestingly, I thought one of the things fiscal council is also saying. Uh, Seamus Coffey is also saying is that we're not just telling the government this we're telling everybody this we're telling the public this so if the public demands extra spending on whatever it is then there are consequences uh, for that or there are potential consequences of that but these are the challenges for government and you know the the, the government is complaining that oh the opposition are in on one in the morning in the doll they're saying oh you've lost control of public finances you're spending money uh, you're spending money like water on the other hand then in the evenings in uh, private members motions they're saying oh government why aren't you spending spending the money on this and they have a point but this isn't about the opposition it's about the government's economic management and you know if it was easy Everybody would be doing it. It's difficult to restrain yourself in government, particularly when you have resources available. But that's the challenge to produce good government. And yeah, I mean, they, they looked at the the fiscal council looked at the corporation tax receipts, which are around ten billion last year, which is extraordinary amount of money, and not far off one euro in every five of tax collected, which is way ahead of the international average. And I mean, the truth is, underneath it all, nobody is quite sure why corporation tax has surged so much in the last few years. We kind of have half an idea, and obviously it's been a good period for the economy, 
and it's been a good period for the multinationals in particular and there's been some changes in their accounting practices but nobody really is quite sure why it's happened and that's why it's that's kind of, scary in itself it, that's it? why it's slightly dangerous so the fiscal council said we look at how the economy has grown in the last few years and we look at how corporation tax has grown and, and we see how much to what extent does A explain B to what extent does the growth in the economy explain the growth in corporation tax and they came up with a whole of you know three, four, five, six billion in terms of that sum. So that's not saying that amount of money is going to disappear overnight. Uh, but it is saying that there's a, there, there's a significant uncertainty here. And there's two bits to that. One is that a lot of it depends on a few big companies. So maybe a dozen big companies. I think the top 10 are responsible for almost 40% of corporation tax revenue. That's 4 billion. So we're one of those companies to put out of Ireland for whatever reason. And who knows what the big American companies are going to do in the current political environment? Who knows what's going to happen to the big tech companies over the next four or five There's years? There's a lot of talk about a new global approach to the Absolutely. way that, that companies being split companies up, are taxed. whatever companies being taxed. But we're one of them to pull out the fiscal council to recommend that that alone could cost us, you know, three, four hundred million mm. straight away in a hit. Which a government could take a hit of three or four hundred million. But it couldn't take too many hits no, of three couldn't. or four hundred million. If you look at like a budget, a budget day package being something of the order of what, like seven or eight hundred yeah. million uh, on on the day, suddenly hmm. that's that's in danger, and that's why there's also an argument in government circles that we have to restrain ourselves. We have to be fiscally prudent because if we don't, then. A, we've nothing to sell. What does Fine Gael have to sell mm. uh, to the electorate after seven or eight years in government other than sensible management of the economy? If it doesn't have that card to play, what does it have to play? But also, politically, it's very clear that, uh, you know, Leo Varadkar wants to run on a tax cut in the next general election. Now, tax cuts, promises of tax cuts don't always work in elections, but they certainly don't work if the public don't believe in your economic credibility to produce them when you're in office. Yeah, I mean, the second second issue with corporation tax, obviously, is this big OECD reform process. It's it's probably a medium-term thing that will happen over 2020, but it is really important and really significant in terms of the long-term forecasts. So good but, planning would build those risks in. Absolutely, and, and that's one of the things that the fiscal council is saying, look, you're not building these risks in and you're not building in realistic expectations for the demands on government revenue for an aging population, for normal increases in health and education, social welfare, all the kind. But there's one other thing I think that the Fiscal Council report highlights, and it kind of, it perhaps could have made it even more central to what I said, which is the risk of a no-deal Brexit in maybe as early as October, pointing out that that is going to be potentially a really significant event for the public finances and deliver a really serious hit, uh, and saying that this could lead us to need to uh, reinvent the whole outlook for the public finances for the next two or three years. And this is a really difficult problem for the government for two reasons. One is the minister has to come out with this so-called summer statement in the next couple of weeks, which is kind of the first warmer-upper for the budget, if you like, saying this is the general approach we're going to take. How does he do that with a no-deal Brexit in, in, in the wings, if you like? Put your own percentages on it, but if you listen to if Boris Johnson gets in, you know, are we up to 50%? Are we over 50% in terms of a risk? So it looks like Pascal Dunham is going to try and say, well, on the one hand, if there is a, a normal Brexit, this is how we're going to go. On the other hand, if there's an ODL Brexit, here's, here's plan B or here's the kind of things we need to consider. Okay, at this, at this remove, but he's due to present his budget in early October. 
the date, the next Brexit date is the end of October. The European Council is going to decide in the middle of October, likely to decide in the middle of October, its approach. So the, the budget for next year is going to be presented in, in, in a vacuum of in, a likely vacuum of indecision in relation to the outcome for Brexit, the single most important thing in terms of the public finances for next year. I'm not sure that's a very handled. cautious approach. It absolutely does. And I'm not sure even in strategic terms how, 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 how that's handled. But it's likely the minister is going to be getting up in the middle of a the kind of chaos we saw in the run-up to the, to the council meeting in, was it F- April? Yeah. It's F- going to be repeated with, with knobs on, with Boris Johnson with knobs no, on. With, with no safety net. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so finally, Pat, what are the political implications of this for this government, which, as you say, has sort of nailed its colours to the mass of being a government of fiscal competence and it's this being questioned in such a fundamental way by an organisation, as you say, speaking to the public as much as it is to the government. Um, Pascal Donoghue talks a good talk about these things. Uh, it's sort of belied by what we've heard this week. Um, uh, Cliff mentioned Leo Varadkar's promise about tax cuts. Um, that could actually even further undercut, could it? This, the, the, you know, the, the pitch, the sales pitch for this yeah, general election, I, which we're going to have in the next year. I think, I, I think there is a real, you know, political bind for Fine Gael uh, at uh, at the moment. I think, you know, it. There's an awareness within there that they need to rebuild economic competence and credibility on the economy and a reputation for fiscal responsibility because they can't go into an election with that uh, with that in danger. But doing that requires them to take decisions on, you know, things like health service funding, on army pay and all those individual political issues that are really difficult to do and maybe and you know maybe very unpopular to do. So I think there is a quite a I think there's quite a significant is there any political challenge for them at the moment. Within the government on that, say particular between Pascal Donoghue and Leo Varadkar. Oh, the other, well, look, I mean the relationship between any Minister for Finance and and and, and Taoiseach, I suppose, is is difficult one to fathom from the outside. Um there's certainly divisions within government amongst uh, ministers. You talk to uh, any minister and in the grand tradition of Irish ministers, they're all in favour of a very tough and responsible fiscal line. Except for their department. With the sole (laughs) exception of some particular issues they need looked after in their own department. And that is is something that kind of gives you this uh, kind of scramble before the budget. Because the budget, remember, must be agreed by cabinet as a whole. So you get this scramble which inevitably drives up the giveaways, uh, the level of giveaways at budget, drives up the level of extra spending uh, in uh, in the budget. Um, I, I think Pascal, and that, that, that traditionally, of course, those forces are much, much stronger in advance of an election. So I think for all those reasons, this budget, if indeed it is delivered uh, on, at the scheduled time in early October, uh, I think will be by some distance the most difficult one that Pascal Donahue's had to produce. Cliff, Pat, thanks very much for coming in today. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks again to Peter Gagan for joining us earlier. Also to our producers Declan Conlon and Jennifer Ryan and to our engineer JJ Vernon. Thanks to you all for your very interesting messages and suggestions. They are always extremely welcome and you can send them to me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. 